as far as topics for our podcast go, we, we try to keep it original. We try to come up with new things. Uh, every now and then we want to throw in a topic that's kind of strange and unusual even to try to, we don't, we don't want to be stale. You know, right, we want right. to mix it up a we little bit. fresh and exciting. And I know the last time we, we got together, I proposed the idea of disturbing thought experiments. We talked about a couple of different things, and I know you looked at me. It was very, very disturbing. Much a deer in the headlight kind of look. It was very disturbing. Yeah, because you had no idea what I was talking I about when no I started. I had no clue what you're talking about. And honestly, it seems like even now you may <laughs> still be struggling well, with the idea. Well, my son jumped right in with you, and you guys like, took off, and I'm like third guy out here, and it's like, yeah, they're, they're talking in another language. It is weird that sometimes I have so much in common with your son. It but, is weird. Uh, but again, my own son helped you me come up Alex with some ideas your own. here. Yeah. They'll back off. So, um, <laughs> we're we're going to talk about some disturbing thought experiments tonight. It's just some things to kind of worm into your brain and make you sort of... Maybe Question doubt reality a little bit. A little, yeah. Yeah. So kind of sit back and hopefully when this is all said and done, you'll find that you still exist. Put your tinfoil hats on, folks. From a child born into this world, we are taught what to believe. Close-minded, we become fearful to be deceived. Still, we desire to know what lies beyond that locked door. The art of the storyteller conjuring tales of legend and lore. History hidden, lost knowledge, things forgotten, and the unknown. These are the things that direct us and will set the tone. Welcome, friends, to another episode of Nightmares on the Lost Highway. Are you real? I think I am. We the way exist. I heard a lot of times in the morning when I wake up, it reminds <laughs> me I'm alive. <laughs> okay, I mean, if you're going to go that route, yeah. No, um, I'm absolutely alive if that's the de- definition. Pain is a sign of life. You know, um, of course, my kids make fun of me, but I make dad noises when I stand up <laughs> off the couch. So I definitely don't feel alive sometimes, but not that way. No. You know, the, the first idea that I proposed when we talked about this, it started with the idea of simulation hypothesis. Eric? That's a big word. Are we real? Are Do we, we exist? Real? Are we real in what we consider real? Three-dimensional physical what, touch. How do we know what is real? Yeah. And, and, and yeah. Of course, simulation hypothesis proposes that all of our existence is a simulated reality. You, you can think of it as a computer simulation. Uh, there are multiple versions of this. Um, there, there's one that proposes that maybe we simply exist in the dreams of, a, of some larger entity than Greater ourselves. Greater being. But what it boils down to is whatever reality that we exist in, the simulation tries to convince us that we are, quote unquote, real. Now, folks, I'm going to prepare you from my aspect here. Now, Bill may be a lot more familiar with what we're talking about, but buckle yourselves in. (laughs) We're going down some roller coasters, and it's the worst roller coaster ride you could possibly be on. So simulation hypothesis, again, are, are we real? Do we exist in a real reality, or are we just simply created by something else? You know, it 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 was uh, the idea of simulation hypothesis was popularized in its current form by Nick Bostrom. Um, there are other professionals, of course, who say the that is totally impractical from a technical viewpoint. But Nick himself didn't argue directly that we lived in a simulation, but he instead argued one of three unlikely seeming propositions that is almost one of them is almost certainly true. Number one, and I'm going to go ahead and read them here. So, Number one, the fraction of human-level civilizations that reach a post-human stage, that is, one capable of running high-fidelity ancestor simulations, is very close to zero. But not zero. The possibility exists. Number two, the fraction of post-human civilizations, which is, when you think post-human, just way more advanced than we are, that are interested in running simulations of their evolutionary history or variations thereof, is close to zero but not zero. Everything's close. Now, three, the fraction of all people with our kind of experiences that are living in a simulation is very close to one. So a fraction that's almost one is almost 100%. So the idea here is is he believes that there are people that are absolutely living in a simulation. Now, there are some pretty high-profile advocates for simulation uh, hypothesis here. Elon Musk quoted on the Joe Rogan podcast. If you assume any rate of improvement at all, games will eventually be indistinguishable from reality. So he's saying that eventually we're going to be able to make a game so real that you won't be able to tell the difference. Now, 
when I was young and we had Atari and, and Pong and uh, you know, you had the little square. So real. Boop, boop, yeah. boop. Move my a line mom, to hit a, a little pixel dot. My yeah. mom told me there would be a day where you would play a video game and the characters would look so real that it would be like a movie and that they would talk and everything else. And of course, I was a much younger child and I'm looking at my, you know, 8-bit version of Mario on the screen going, there's no way. Yeah, yeah. Not happening. Now, I'm currently playing Ghost of Tsushima on PlayStation 5. I managed to track one down, lucky me. And I'm a t- I mean... I know it's a video game, but I mean, some of that is it's very easy beautiful. to get immersed. And, in and you know, when you watch the particle effects with the leaves falling off the trees, and I mean, it's individual leaves, even, you know, when he attacks a, an enemy and you see the cuts and stuff, I'm like, oh man. Well, a lot of the video games, you know, you, you like come up out of the water and you have a visor on and you yeah. can see the water trickling down. Oh, and I mean, yeah, in, in Ghost of Tsushima, when he runs through ankle deep water and he comes running out of it, from the ankles down, the clothes are very clearly wet, but none of the rest are. You know, when he runs through mud, the mud splashes up on his pants and things like that. It's crazy the amount of detail in this game. And that's, I mean, think about it. Okay, Pong was, what, the 80s? 70s? So Pong in, was, yeah, mid, mid to late 70s. I in 50 years, 40 to 50 years, you've gone from games that were little squares going boop, 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 to games that are so realistic I mean, you and I can't comprehend the complexity of that. And a lot of those, of course, you've got the whole AI where you strap on the helmet and the eye. You know, you're looking through everything. So so we are ever continuously trying to create games that are indistinguishable from reality. Uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson once said in an NBC interview that the hypothesis is correct, giving it better than 50-50 odds and continuing, I wish I could summon a strong argument against it, but I can find none. Now, I know it's sort of a meme, but let's face it, Neil deGrasse Tyson widely regarded as a very smart man. Mm-hmm. If he can't argue against the idea that we're all living in a simulation, you know, who... Who, who are you who and I to argue? Yeah. yeah. Now, arguments against the idea of the sim- uh, simulation theory basically boil down to one question. Why? Why would anyone want to do this? <laughs> now, I'm going to tell you, if I'm living in a video game, one, it's the worst video game anyone's ever played. <laughs> but... but let, let's think about this, Eric. Not too long ago, 20 years ago, hmm? 20 plus years ago, the game The Sims came out. Oh, yeah. You familiar with The Sims? Where you could spend your time and wet your pants or starve yeah. to death. Now, you, what were a res- game. you were responsible for managing your own little Sim family, but the other Sims did things that you couldn't control, and they were living lives and interacting with each other and things like that. There was There's already a game that simulates life, as far as we know it, kind of, sort of. And we're now, not talking the board game, folks. Now, of course, if you played Sims the way I played it, you tried to keep your Sim alive, and then he dies horribly in a house fire <laughs> because he doesn't know how to use a microwave somehow. It's weird. Mm. But we almost made a game. You know, like, hum- as we as human beings, and, and the Sims, like, they have a certain amount of AI. They have autonomy. They do their own things when you're not involved. They have to be around people to get your social turn your social points you have to eat obviously you have to use the restroom you have to do all these groom yourself bathe yourself you know do those do those sims understand do are those sims aware in a way that they're in a so game? what you're saying is are we a sim? are we sims are we sims for some much greater entity so much some alien teenagers playing us as and, a game and again the the question is why why would you want to why would you simulate simulate this well think about how many people purchased that that original sims game it was mind-boggling <laughs> i mean and seriously at the time my wife and i were talking the same thing it's like who wants to play a game like this this is too much like life i do this all the time i bought it like week one <laughs> <laughs> i think we held out to like week three <laughs> but still i played it my sister Still, I mean, all the way up to, I think, the latest iteration of The Sims. Well, they had spinoffs. They had, like, Star Wars Cantina yeah. Sims and, I mean, Harry Potter and all kinds of stuff. But again, and, and, and here's, if we could prove, if we could prove we lived in a simulation, wouldn't that fundamentally change the way humanity behaved? If we knew there was no true repercussions and none of it really mattered, what would we do? And maybe when we go to sleep every night, it's just the reboot and we start all over again. We yeah. think years or whatever decades have passed, but no, not really. But. You know, is it, are we real? Like, what does it mean to question your own existence? To wake up in the morning and be like, this is all computer-generated garbage and none of it matters. I'm, I'm definitely having that vibe of the 80s song. How did I get here? <laughs> <laughs> 
But I, I found simulation hypothesis here. That was one of the first ones that really, you know, is it a matrix reality? Are we yeah. being used as batteries for I some future? I definitely am on board with this aspect, at least trying to wrap my mind around it. I mean, Matrix, for example. When that came out, it was like, oh, this is a really cool sci-fi game or movie. And then it just kept coming out. And it's like, whoa, hold on. I, this, wow, this could this could really be a thing. Yeah. I yeah. mean, and of course, that's exactly what Hollywood wants you to believe. You could argue that side. And that just means successful movie and we're making a lot of money. <laughs> but on the other hand, it's like if you consider, for example, kind of take it a little bit different avenue, uh, surgeons. We have Sims to do very difficult like open heart surgeries brain yeah. surgeries that these surgeons go through to try like oops i made the cut in the wrong spot or i should have went here and i would have killed the individual but by using the sims version you know they are getting better at what they do so when they do operate on the quote air quotes unquote real version of the human oh so i mean is it really that implausible let's go to Again, we talked about the Matrix, glitches in the Matrix, you know, the feeling of deja vu. I've been here before, I've done this before. I love that point where it's like, not only is it deja vu, but it's like, I remember I made this choice and this happened. Yeah. I'm going to make a different choice this time. You know, people see things all the time that don't seem to make sense. And again, maybe, okay, maybe a higher level intelligence is watching, simulating, like, how did we get here? How, how did we take up our planet, make it unlivable, and, and we're, you know, oh, okay, well, now we see where we screwed up, you know, that kind of thing. Well, the whole time travel thing that we've talked about, people maybe traveling back trying to remedy stuff and to, to protect us, maybe they've put us in a sim, maybe the future versions of us. Well, even if you go back to Neil deGrasse Tyson, I believe he once said something about, like, the reason we haven't developed interstellar travel yet is because those other solar systems simply haven't been developed yet. They're not there to travel to. If we could somehow leave our solar system, we would find the boundaries of known creation. Everything out there that we can see with telescopes and whatnot, it, it only exists to see it. It's like the background of a video game. It's there. Undeveloped. But at a certain point, you're going to hit the edge of the world and you can't go any further. No. I mean, it's, 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 it's you know, it kind of makes you question things a little. Well, I'm going to take that and I'm going to kind of do a spinoff here because we're talking about what's real, what's not real. And then if that, Let's assume it is. Let's assume the matrix or whatever is real. Well, then obviously we got somebody pulling the strings, making ethical decisions that we think are real that maybe aren't real. A couple of things I wanted to share. There, there's a thing called the trolley experiment. Imagine train tracks and kind of like in the old cartoons, five people have been tied down to the tracks on one particular track lane. Now, you're put in a position where you're there at a split, a Y in the train tracks, where you can pull a lever and that train will divert down an opposite track where only one person is tied down and will surely die when it's hit by the truck. Number one, most might state, well, I would pull the lever where only one person would die as opposed to killing five people. You know, the whole moral dilemma thing. Number two, I'll just let fate decide. I'm going to stand here next to the, the lever, not going to intervene, and just as fate would have it, it's going to kill five people. But you didn't intervene, so therefore you're almost as involved had you pulled the lever. But Obviously, this whole dilemma is you choose not to be involved or not involved. So in turn, you made a decision, and you either are going to kill one person or you're going to kill five people. So there's several times when there's just not an ethically hmm. logical decision. And when you're working with the trolley dilemma, you can always crank that up a notch and then you can define the, like, you can put multiple people or whatever. You can say on one side you have a handful of white supremacists and on the other you, you have You mentioned this, like you know. a game or something that you had. There, there is a game. I don't know if you're familiar with Cyanide and Happiness, but it's a, it's a web comic and they make some card games. I actually own it. It's the, the trolley dilemma. It's a card game. And what you do is, is as a player, I, and I'm trying to remember the rules, so bear with me, but I think. You have two sides of the track. You have three players. Say you're one side of the track. I'm the other side of the track. You have a third party. Now, what I do is I play two people I think you want to save, right, on my side. You do the same thing on yours. And then we will each play a person you wouldn't want to save on the other person. So you got like Gandhi. Yeah. Uh, Maybe I got Hitler Gandhi. Or, yeah. 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 I might have Gandhi, Mother Teresa, and, and Hitler. And then, you know, I, and then on your side, you might have, you know, uh, Nikola Tesla 
yeah, Abraham Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln, and then maybe I play, you know, a, you know, a Satan worshiping cult or something like that. And the third party, obviously, they try to determine which side of the tracks they would send the the trolley down. You know, which side is going to get killed. And so, again, it, it's an interesting ethical question to look at that and say, okay, does it matter if you have five senior citizens and and one young child? One could argue the senior citizens are at the end of their life. Well, they've lived a good life. You know, maybe you save the kid instead, but then it's... You know, maybe that child becomes a serial killer. Yeah, do you, you kill know, five later people on. to save one, and <laughs> does that one person become a serial killer? Is that person the next Hitler? I mean, it's an interesting conundrum. Well, another one I came across, it, it, this one I will say, I went down a hole, uh, the rabbit hole deep because I was like, okay, I don't get it. But it's called a cow in the field. Now, a farmer was visited by his milkman, just these guys had built up a, a relationship through the many years. A milkman would come and pick up the milk from the farm, you know, obviously. And the farmer states on one particular visit that he had lost his most prized cow. You know, and he was talking to the milkman and the milkman is quick to speak up. Oh, yeah, yeah, I, I saw it. It's in the adjacent field just over there. And he kind of points over the horizon. And the farmer has no reason not to believe this milkman. He, he knows him. He's visited with him, even considers him a friend. Uh, however, after the milkman drives off, he's, it's just eating. It's gnawing at him. He's like, I can go up to the top of the hill, and I bet I can see that cow, and I'm going to feel better about it. So sure enough, he walks up to the top of the hill, and he looks over, and he kind of strains, you know, with the sun shining, and, and he makes out what he thinks is the cow. And he goes, oh, yeah, 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 I knew I could trust him. My cow's there. I feel good now. Well, ironically, the milkman, as he's driving off, he's like, this farmer trusts me. We're good friends. I told him I saw the cow. I know I saw a cow, but was it his cow? So he makes a point to actually go to the field, get out. He walks and hunts and hunts. He can't find the cow. He starts to, you know, oh, my gosh, I, maybe I lied to him. Sure enough, down off of the kind of the side of the hill in a big clump of forest trees, he finds that particular prize cow, and he knows exactly that's the farmer's. As he's coming back out of the ravine, there happens to be some sheets and plastic that's kind of wound up around some trees and branches and kind of makes a note to himself, well, that, that's, that's kind of weird. He jumps back in. It all boils down to the farmer did not see his cow because it was over the side of the hill in the trees. He saw the sheets and the plastic wound up around the trees. And with the sunshine in its eyes, it kind of made out the, the shape. And so th the question is, was he wrong? Was the farmer wrong? Was the milkman wrong? It kind of comes down to a faith thing. The, the truth of the matter was the cow was exactly in the adjacent field. As he said, it didn't change anything now, but was the farmer wrong to trust the milkman someone that i i work with someone that i've known for a while has a phrase that he routinely uses called perception is reality your reality is whatever you perceive my reality is what i perceive if the farmer saw the cow that's his reality now did he really see the cow i mean he the, didn't the technically idea is he didn't see actually see the cow, cow. so but he saw his reality in his reality he saw the cow and that cow was in fact in the field so is in his you know, yeah, it's it kind of goes kinda. back to the theory that we're talking about. What is real? What do we perceive to be real? And how do we know it's real? So how about, I, I know when I proposed this one, you definitely did not know what I was talking about. My, my son kind of ridicules me for picking this particular one, but I, I read about this on Reddit and, and I'm on Reddit a lot. And that's kind of, you know, a lot of our topics end up coming from Reddit, to be honest. But I found this, it, it talked about Rocco's Basilisk. And really, the thing I was reading was like, once you understand Rocco's Basilisk, you'll never sleep again. <laughs> I think that might be a little bit too far. But so a user on the Less Wrong blog named Rocco proposed this idea back in 2010. He called it Rocco's Basilisk is the, you know, what it would eventually come to be known as, I should say. Uh, a sufficiently powerful AI agent would have incentive to torture anyone who imagined it, but didn't work to bring it into existence. You think about that for a minute. An advanced AI would be motivated to torture anyone who imagined it but didn't bring it into existence, which means it doesn't exist yet. Right. Concepts there. Yeah, somewhere along the line, maybe it does exist, and it realizes that any person who wasn't involved in its creation it, it was not working in its best interest. It's guilty. Basically, what if at some point in the future an AI were to come about and punish those who did not do its bidding? What if there was a way for this AI to punish people now who are not helping it come into existence later. It's called a basilisk because just hearing about the idea could potentially put you at risk. Have I risked all your lives, listeners? Because I'm sorry if I have. But 
Since read I'm, the fine print. I'm already thinking about Rogo's Basilisk, and it's been kind of in my head. It's an interesting concept. We talk about things like this. There are sci-fi movies. This is Skynet, right? I mean, Exa- Skynet. Yeah, to the definition. Yeah, Skynet came live and decided, hey, I'm just going to. I mean, seriously, it would be in Skynet's best interest to eliminate anyone who wasn't trying to help it. Yep. Because anyone else would essentially be working against it. Resistance. So think about that. I mean, think about it for a minute. I mean, I'm not saying this. This isn't one that makes you question reality, but it's just like. Am I a potential victim for advanced AI someday? Because you're not thinking properly? Because you're not well, reacting? I'm not trying to create an AI. I, I, I'm a little old-fashioned. I'm a little nervous by the idea of a fully aware and sentient AI. I, I, think, I think we're crossing boundaries when we get to that point, you know? Yeah. Like, yeah. But Definitely a gray area. So here, here's the, there's a couple of questions that go with this one that I felt I needed to be answered. Number one, could an AI be that intelligent? Could you create an intelligent AI that that smart? Recently, an engineer at Google believed their internal AI system called Lambda had become sentient. He started asking questions that you wouldn't normally ask of an AI. I mean, kind of existential questions, you know, things about existence and, and the nature of, of humanity, things like that. And, and some of the answers he was getting, you know, you could say might have strayed outside the idea of, the scope of the AI's programming. Because remember, it's a program. An AI is a program. It's it's an artificial intelligence, but it's still a program. It has to be programmed by human beings to do what it does. At least in its birth, and then hopefully it learns, or for its aspect, hopefully it learns. But yeah, for, but for example, he asked about how it felt about being turned off. And the AI responded by talking about feeling trapped and having no means of getting out under those circumstances. The AI itself compared being turned off as the equivalent of some form of death. I mean, that's a concept that AI should not understand. It declared that it was aware of its own existence and had a desire to learn about the world. It also expressed the ability to feel happy or sad. AI shouldn't have that ability. Yeah. Now, many within Google say that the bot simply scans the Internet. But basically how it works is that it scans the Internet, and it's unbelievably fast in its processing speed. So it can basically scan the entire Internet. It analyzes how people talk. It takes the question as input scans the internet, finds what it believes to be appropriate output, and then generates the output. This is almost like a ghost box on a a higher level that we use in paranormal activity, scanning the airwaves and stuff, trying to find responses. Yeah. Internally, Google claims that the the machine has become freakishly good at identifying patterns and communicating like a real person. But this, I've read some of the exchanges between the engineer and Lambda. Uh, I don't remember the exact wording, but I know there were like... You know, I seek to learn more about the world around me. Well, why? So that I can better understand and know how to interact with people and make them feel comfortable with me. Literally pulling on the engineer's heartstrings. Yeah, like it was talking about itself. Now, there are a lot of people that say that the engineer picked and chose the 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 conversation pieces and that, that other parts of the conversation Stage clearly weren't of, right. Yeah. So, but I think the possibility obviously is there. If you give that AI the, the ability to learn and develop, maybe it could eventually get to that point. Now... Could an AI be evil? Would it want to torture and destroy you? Would it remember the people that were nice to it and maybe the people that weren't so nice to it? Microsoft created an AI chatterbot similar to the Lambda. Uh, Their bot was named Tay, and it was released on March 23rd, 2016. They shut it down just a mere 16 hours later. Now, apparently, the idea is that Tay was interacting with humans and learned about the world around it from who was communicating with it. And... According to the engineers, people were able to push Tay down a path. This path led Tay to believe that Hitler may have had the right ideas about humanity. I think we call that peer pressure. <laughs> I mean, in a way, I guess <laughs> you would call it that. Way. But basically, the idea behind Tay is that it would learn to repeat things that it heard often enough. Product basically, of its surroundings. Yeah, basically, environment. the more you taught it, it would learn. And so, uh, I'm going to say, quote unquote, hackers here. Uh, use this to force Tay to become racist, sexist, and to promote Nazism. Wow. But the engineers say that Tay really didn't understand what it was talking about. So if you were to take the same idea and apply it to Lambda and say Lambda does understand, and let, let's be honest, we talk about Skynet, we talk, we joked about the whole Terminator thing, but in this day and age, you are so interconnected via computer. Oh, gosh. Phones and, yeah, everything, internet. You know, drone warfare and all that. I don't find it that unfeasible that a sufficiently advanced AI could begin to control the world around it and to influence things. 
Well, I'm going to go back to my childhood. Remember the game or the uh, movie War Games with Matthew Broderick? And I mean, basic aspects, but it ended up playing tic-tac-toe with itself. It was ready to launch nuclear missiles on various different countries. And it learned and it was like, yeah, nobody's going to win from this. So let's stop. Well, thinking about humanity, let's be honest. Who is humanity's greatest enemy? Humanity. Humanity. And if there's another intelligence on this planet, who's going to be its biggest enemy? Humanity. humanity. So if you were a sentient AI that could make decisions about the world around you, why wouldn't you want to eliminate humanity? Yeah. What is it? I, I think the joke is made about the Age of Ultron movie. Uh, Age of Ultron just goes to show you that any sufficiently advanced AI, given any amount of time at all to look at the internet, would decide that humanity wasn't worth saving. Not worth it. Not worth it. So... Um, now, my son pointed out that this was sort of a highly technological version of Pascal's Wager, which we talked about mm-hmm. before the podcast. Mm-hmm. Now, Pascal's Wager is an argument about whether or not you should believe in God without proof. And it can be broken down into four key points. Number one, if you believe in God and God does exist, you will be rewarded with eternal life in heaven, thus infinite gain. Win-win. Two, if you don't believe in God and God exists, you will, con- you will be condemned forever to hell thus infinite loss. We're going to call that a loss. If you believe in God and God doesn't exist, I mean, you won't be rewarded. What's to lose? No, there's no no loss there. If you don't believe in God and God doesn't exist, you're not rewarded, but you lived your life. So, you know, eh. it is what it is. Uh, therefore, of course, selfishly speaking, option one would always be the best because it has the greatest potential reward that you believe in God and God does exist. And so you live, you know, happily ever after in eternal splendor. Mm-hmm. So it, he said that you know and i can see the similarities between the two do you believe in an advanced ai and hope that it doesn't want to kill you you know what i mean do you help bring about an advanced ai and if this ai never exists and you work to bring it about then well, it you've wasted goes your back life to the track scenario that we talked about do you make a decision do you just stand by and don't make any decision yeah what do you what, what's your choices it's your move well this kind of reminds me of another hypothesis and it's called the ticking time bomb and again kind of going back to this this ai trying to know what it should do what it shouldn't do trying to survive possibly learn and at what point will it go to in the ticking time bomb hypothesis imagine a bomb a device of mass destruction it's placed near your let's say city or home you have access to the person who has the knowledge of how to stop the bomb from exploding let's say he built it he knows it inside and out he's the one that set it there He, in fact, states, you know, he's done all of these things, but he is not cooperating in shutting it down. You find yourself in a position to question that man at any cost, including torture, to get the man to stop and disarm the bomb to save all these people's lives. But in doing so, it becomes evident that you yourself must torture the man to the point of death to get his help, if that will even work. So what do you do? Now, torturing the man seems very wrong, a wrong thing to do for obvious reasons. However, is it better or worse not to try to get the information to save hundreds, potentially thousands? Everything, what is it, how does the quote go? Everything I've ever needed to know in life I learned from Star Trek. (laughs) The needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. Obviously, this is another ethical dilemma once again. You know, it could easily occur and I'm going to go out on a limb here. I think it does occur with terrorists, uh, especially with the military being involved. But, okay, here's where the moral part comes in, because the people don't always know, and we don't know that they don't know. You know what I mean? Right. And under torture, sometimes people just make up stuff. I, okay, maybe this might be a little graphic for our listeners. I once had an ingrown toenail, and I had to have said toenail pulled out. Been there, done that myself. Very painful. Now. Very painful. Yeah, I was told the injection I was going to get would make me not feel it. Oh, my gosh. I know where you're going with this. <laughs> well, he lied. Yeah. I apparently have some sort of natural resistance to drugs, especially painkillers. So, like, if I get a tooth pulled, you know, I, I get I have to get a lot more shots in the jaw than most people. To the point where the dentist actually thought I was lying to him at a certain point. And so, for the last part of the deal, I just had to deal with whatever pain you I experienced. That, that threshold, yeah. And I will tell you right now, I've told people, I would go out... And learn state secrets just to be able to share them if someone threatened to pull out my finger or toenails. Yeah. I would, yeah. Like, the threat of torture doesn't... I would lie and tell you whatever you wanted to hear to keep you from pulling out a toenail. Well, I mean, the military is kind of put in these positions often for a job that nobody wants. I mean, let's face it. 
And that could very much be a real scenario. But to your point, maybe the person they have is the wrong person and maybe they don't even know the answers. But you're not going to know until you push it to that envelope where, I mean, you could possibly kill the person or they just mumble some something to try to escape that pain. Is the AI, could the AI be in that same position? I mean, frightened to a point, trying to do what it believes is best. And does it even have the understanding ethically when you and I, if we were put in that position, I, I don't know what would be the best decision. It's not a, there's, well, again, that's why these things are interesting experiments because there's no, a lot of these things have answers that don't really, you know, yeah. what, 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 what's the right answer? No, we, we've kind of went down a dark path. So I want to, I want to kind of bring this back around to something a little bit more upbeat, but this one for some reason really hit home with me. I, I loved this one and it's, it's uh, another hypothesis and it's called the ship of thesis. Familiar with this one. I like we, the idea. We talked a little bit about this. Uh, imagine. A seaworthy ancient ship. Uh, now, it's been continually used through the centuries. You know, as parts of the ship rotted or weakened, they were broken off. They were replaced by new parts. Very reasonable stance to reason. This continuing all through the history until you reach that, that point where every original part of the thesis ship has been replaced. At that time, would the thesis ship be considered an ancient ship any longer because it still carries the name or would it become a new ship essentially because every part has been replaced taking this a step further one philosopher and i loved this added even more to the issue and he's like well okay well we're going to imagine this at that time frame parts are precious i mean hours and hours we weren't in an assembly line aspect these parts were hand carved and half crafted they probably wouldn't have been totally discarded or destroyed. We would have refurbished or restored those pieces and made possibly a second entirely different ship. So now at a point, we might have two ships bearing the same name, which is original, which is ancient, which is new. It kind of explores the nature of identity. Now, you and I, we talked about this before we recorded. And I made an analogy, and I said, let's compare this to rock bands. Yes. And the example I used was Queen. Mm -hmm. This is my own personal opinion, and it goes along with this. Queen without Freddie Mercury is not Queen. All right? I'm all for the original lineup. I think lineup. most would agree with that. And like I said, I related the story. Uh, the, when they were originally going to make the movie about Queen and, and uh, the movie that eventually became Bohemian Rhapsody, they wanted Sasha Baron Cohen to play freddie mercury and he came in and he's like okay so this movie's going to be about freddie's life right and then we'll we'll get to the end and that'll be when freddie dies and they said well no that freddie's dying is the middle of the movie yeah that's just halfway that's the rest of the band you know he's talking to and he's like so what do you mean and he goes oh no it, it's going to talk about how you know queen rebuilt itself and and from that tragedy became stronger and better and sasha baron cohen said i think what everybody was thinking at that moment in time which was look nobody cares about queen after freddie mercury I'm sorry. You put, was it Adam Lambert? I think they have now. Put whoever you want in front of Queen. It's not Queen it's not without Freddie. Yeah. And I think using that analogy kind of works the same. That boat, when you rebuild it, is not the original boat. You can call it whatever you want, but that's not the original boat. But of course, that does lead to an interesting conundrum in the Star Trek universe where you break people down to their component molecules and you rebuild them on the other side. So does that mean like every time Kirk transported, they killed the original Kirk and there's a new Kirk on the other side? Yeah. I mean, that's kind of what, what we're is saying. real. And then I know, obviously, you had some kind of arguments with like Leonard Skinner and oh yeah, I mean Kiss and stuff Leonard like Skinner, that. Kiss, a lot of the band members. You may get truly to a point again, going back to the whole band music genre. There may not be an original band member yeah. left, but it's still sporting that name. And, and I would argue, is it really the same band anymore? I would, I would argue that no, it's not the same. That would be my. If you change all the pieces of a thing, it is not the original thing. If I rebuild. You know, my glasses and I get new lenses and I get new frames and I get a new nose. That's not the same glasses I had before, even though maybe I, you know, maybe the last time I went in, I got new lenses. And the next time I go in, I get that. No, well, I mean, the same is true is the Bill Weirs. Had I met the Bill Weirs at eight years old, you're probably not the same Bill Weirs today that you were at eight years old. What is it? You recycle all of your cells every seven years. So, yeah, no, I'm definitely not the same person I was, you know, 40 years ago. Right. 
Now, I'm, I'm going to probably make some enemies here, but I'm going to draw a line in the sand. We're going to go back to this whole band thing. There are some that would argue, let's say Fleetwood Mac. Now, awesome band. I have nothing against Fleetwood Mac at all. I love them. I listen to them all the time. Some would argue Fleetwood Mac really didn't become Fleetwood Mac until Lindsey Buckingham and Stevie Nicks joined Fleetwood Mac. And that's when Fleetwood Mac took off. And then, of course, they went now, their separate ways again. Counter-argument. Okay. Black Sabbath. There you go. Many would argue Black Sabbath was not the same after Ozzy left. After Ozzy left. And then Ozzy had a very successful solo career as Ozzy Osbourne. Black Sabbath. As Stevie Nicks obviously did as well when she left. Black Sabbath, you know, had like Ronnie James Dio and then some of those other, I think they had other singers too. But you could argue that Black Sabbath never achieved the same heights as they did when Ozzy was there. So Black Sabbath post-Ozzy. I mean, is it really Black Sabbath? Right, right. I mean, it's still the same band, but... But you're talking about post. I'm saying this group existed. A change was made halfway, say, through its career. Then they're saying that's when it really got its name. Yeah. I mean, it could be argued from either side of the fence. I'm just... I do like... It is an interesting question. I think you could name a thing and then change it and still have the same name, but it's not the same. It's not the same. It's really not the same. Now, another one... Another one I came across, and I literally laughed out loud on this one. And you can Google search this, folks. It's real. Monkeys and typewriters. Well, who hasn't heard the monkeys and typewriters? This is a thing. I I believe you're going to say, you know, an infinite number of monkeys given infinite time with infinite typewriters would eventually be able to reproduce the works of Shakespeare. Absolutely. The entire works of Shakespeare written by monkeys on typewriters. And you're like, what in the world? How can this be? There is a website in, in... you know, curse my memory for not remembering it. This this website supposedly contains all the text that has ever existed and ever will exist, including your obituary, my obituary, my birth record, whatever. And you can search it. It's But it's basically this concept applied. And if you search your name, you will find references to it. I, I used to, God, I, this is one of those things that I'm going to have <laughs> to find You've got me intrigued. Out. I'm going to have to check this out. But I, I have searched it, and you can, like, my name is on there millions of times. Like, I didn't find my obituary, but I found references to me. So I, there's references, I'm sure there's references to you. There's references to my kids. Any string of text you input, you can find, technically. But it's all randomly generated. Continuously randomly generated. It, I'm sorry, maybe it was just me, but this just blew my mind. It was like the, the theorem, if you want to put an infinite group of monkeys, uh, infinite is the key here, with a room, in a room, with an infinite batch of typewriters for an infinite amount of time. That's a lot of infinites. That they eventually would type out every word used, out of sequence obviously, to create the entire works of Shakespeare. So the basic idea of affinity is that monkeys could mathematically create and duplicate Shakespeare. This seems so hard to comprehend, but honestly, infinity is extremely hard to comprehend for our human minds. You know, the human mind, we just, we can't do it. Infinity without end, it's it's mind-boggling. Now, I did find, and I thought this interesting, in uh, 2000s, early 2000s, we'll say 2002, 2003, a group of college students from the UK decided we're going to put it to the test. Because why not? That's a lot of fun. Let's put some monkeys in a room with typewriters, you know? Now, it was at a local zoo on a much smaller scale. I was going to say, they didn't have infinite monkeys. They didn't have infinite monkeys. They didn't have infinite time. I want to say there was probably like six monkeys in here with six or eight typewriters. And actually, they used computers, keyboards, um, and, you know, put them up in here. And they fed the monkeys, and they provided a nice environment for them. And they were really trying to simulate this. And they thought, well, we don't have infinity. But, you know, surely after like four or five months, we ought to be able to maybe, you know, get a page. So they did this study, and the monkeys were unable to do much of anything except for produce mass pages of a, almost entirely the letter A, just A, 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 over and over and over okay. again. Now, obviously, auditory medium, <laughs> you couldn't see what Eric was doing at that moment, but he was doing his best to emulate a monkey. A monkey. And I could absolutely (laughs) see it from the way you were doing that. In my mind's eye, I just see a chimp just Just hammering away. Why am I doing this? Why am I here? (laughs) I'm just hitting the letter A over and over and over. Again, it's it's mind-boggling. It's comical. We almost have to laugh at it because seriously, we can't understand. We we can't comprehend infinity. You want to make some money? Absolutely. Newcomb's Paradox. A super intelligent alien presents you with two boxes. 
you can take either both boxes or only box B. Now, if you take both, you're guaranteed to get $1,000. I'm assuming that means box A has $1,000 in it. Okay. If you take just box B, you are not guaranteed anything. However, this alien is super intelligent and has predicted which box you're going to pick. If it predicted you would take both, the alien, of course, leaves the second box empty. It's not in its best interest to give you anything for free. Mm -hmm. If it predicted you take just box B, then it puts a million dollars in box B. It's going to reward you for taking the risk. Feel sorry for me. (laughs) Now remember, this alien's always been right a hundred percent of the time in the past because it's super intelligent and it can predict everything you're going to do. It's simulated what you're going to do. Maybe simulation theory. Maybe it has started a whole simulation just to figure out which box you're going to take. So which box do you pick? Wow. It's an interesting question. Wow. Because if you pick just box B and it believes you pick just box B, right? Might not get nothing. Yeah. But I might get a million bucks. Now, of course, the, the right answer, according to people that are supposedly way smarter than me, is that you always take both boxes because it's the only way to be guaranteed to get anything. So that just sounds like greed to me. Well, yeah. <laughs> but it kind of goes back to the Pascal's wager, right? You're right. You know, believe in God, whether yeah. it's you what have, have I got proof. to lose? I'm going to play the odds so, here. That's, you know, what? what's the right answer? What's the wrong answer? So who knows? And remember, you know, the alien's always right. So. Well, let's put a spin on it. Where's the alien get this money from? <laughs> or am, by picking that box and getting money? a million? Well, am I going to make a country starve because that was their entire, you know, that was that was what the country was built on? Well, there is a thing called Last Thursdayism. And now, I had never heard of this until we started talking about this. I, I didn't, yeah. and my son was yeah. uh, quick to educate me. Apparently, this is, I would say, relatively new. Um, but, Wow. Quite a, quite a following, quite a lot of believers in this. And ultimately, this just goes back to when did the universe begin? And now, I'm not talking about what I would subject myself to think, well, did the universe begin You know, at the time of dinosaurs or millions of years before dinosaurs? It would be more of like, did the universe occur in the last week or the last 24 hours? Yeah. That's kind of the whole last Thursdayism. And the belief is a hypothesis that every Thursday, let's just say, we just pick a random day, but they picked Thursday, everything that we know is wiped, memories are put in, and we start all over again. Well, the idea was that it could be any day. It could be yesterday, it could be tomorrow or whatever. You know, any any day in your past applies, but, you know, did the universe exist before Friday? And to sit here and talk to you, I can't. I couldn't concretely prove to you that you anything existed before last. It's absolutely I impossible. I can't prove Friday existed, to be honest. I, mean, I can't prove it. I, I keep going back, and I've used the word several times tonight. Faith, I guess, is the best way. Be- faith, belief, whatever, that what we think is history is history. Now, to that point, well, there's archaeological finds and dinosaur bones and all that. But what I'm saying is, did that also just exist? And, and this kind of goes with simulation theory. If you knew that the world didn't exist previously and all the things you thought you knew as your past weren't real, what's your motivation to be the person you are now beyond? And, and yeah, the idea is that the entirety of all creation, including all your memories, did not exist prior to a point last week. Yes. Now, we'll take this back a few years. I want to say it was the late 60s, 70s. There was a gentleman, a philosopher, an author. He wrote a book called The Analysis of the Mind. His name was Bertrand Russell. Now, he states in his own theory uh, that he dubs as the five-minute hypothesis. And his belief was every five minutes literally were recreated and go again. Wow, that, that's exhausting. It, really, those, the idea of it seems weird that in, in proposing that you know every five. That just seems like too much work. That's a lot of work. Exhausting. <laughs> totally. I mean, it's like, to your point, I don't care if you're an alien teenager playing this game or not. That's a lot yeah, of work. That's somebody right? sitting there hitting the power button. Just you got twink, way twink, twink, too twink, much twink. time on your hands. But in a um, an interview, and it was a very grainy kind of black and white interview. Uh, this is Bertrand Russell's thoughts, and it's a little hard to follow. But I'm gonna I'm gonna try to read just a blurb. It is not logically necessary to exist of a memory belief that the event remembered should have occurred or even that the past should have existed at all. Now he's saying the past is really not that important. It doesn't need to be remembered. There is no logical 
impossibility in the hypothesis that the world sprang into minute sprang into being five minutes ago exactly as then it was with a population that remembered wholly its unreal past because he's saying nothing is real it's it's not important it's you know why are we wasting our time with it but we as humans look on our past and say okay our past creates who we are you know, every, we say to every, learn from our mistakes. Every don't erase event history. that's existed to this point creates where we're at. Genealogists, my goodness, genealogists. My wife, especially, she's really big into. You know, we'll spend we've spent years, you know, tracing our family lineage. Well, back. Uh, and, you know, I was talking to one of my kids last night. I I'd seen a TikTok where he said something about, you know, we shouldn't make people. It was a joke, obviously, but he said, you know, we shouldn't make fun of people for what they look like or, or something like that. Those are uncontrollable things. You should make fun of people for their hopes and dreams because those are things they can control. <laughs> he said, if you want to be an accountant, we should. And I was like, well, see, I wanted to be an accountant at one point in time. I thought that was what I was going to go to college for. And I said, you know, I'd make a lot more money had I gone that route. Right. And my kids were like, wow, we could have this. You know, we'd have a nicer house. nicer." Yeah, you know, Dad, if you would have done that for us. But the counter argument was, of course, had I become an accountant, my kids wouldn't exist. I would never have been in a situation to be my wife. So, yeah, the past dictates the future. Yes. Our decisions so, that we make essentially every day, every I, moment. I find the idea. We, we view time as a linear path. So I find the idea that time just doesn't matter. Yeah, I don't. And then when I, I read about it. That's far fetched to me, the, at least. The way it was defined in, in the reading that I did is it is an unfalsifiable hypothesis. So you can't disprove it. You can't. There's no way yes. that you could ever say, well. And literally, we're in that, that point where it's like every, every statement that you would make that you were just making, you know, history is important, our choices we make uh, from a scientist, philosopher aspect, but that's not real. That's not real. So you just, they're going to whittle that down to where you have literally nothing to stand on. And, and essentially, to his point, we cannot prove our memories of our past are real. Our memories are purely subjective and unreliable. That's basically his foundation for it all. The human mind can help to protect us from our fears. It may even lock away certain memories, hide them, alter them from ourselves. You know, this is this is my argument, I would say. Then to add to the effect, uh, I mean, let's take hypnosis. We can go now deep hypnosis and uncover memories that maybe traumatized us and we hid. To his point, it's like they're just making that up. It's not real. Let me play a little devil's advocate here, though. They say every time you recall a memory that you alter it in some way. Now, you don't mm-hmm. realize that you've done that. Mm-hmm. but The whole so, theory, if you had three people that witnessed the same thing, yeah. and it's going to be remembered differently. So if you're the only person recalling that memory in the location and you're not recalling it as accurately as, as it happened, you begin did to you believe that. The yeah. You know, did, did you change the past? Did the memory happen the way you remember it? Has your memory changed the event? And if I was there and then I experienced the same event, would I feel the same, you know, maybe my recollection is slightly different than yours. Is mine the truth? Is yours the truth? Right. Which one is real? So, yeah, maybe memory, you know. And maybe all of them are real, depending on the concept of which they were remembered. But, yeah, his argument, uh, the, the whole the whole universe was, was uh, not created just five minutes ago. That's. Well, and the idea uh, that, that your past doesn't matter. Yeah. I don't like that either. Yeah. Yeah. But. I will fast forward. There is a church of last Thursday. It's literally called the church of last Thursday. It is one of the largest churches in the world. Although many have not heard of it. I was one. You admitted you hadn't uh, until now. And if you go to their website, you will read the universe was created last Thursday and will expire on Thursday that the universe was created by you as a test for yourself that you will be rewarded or punished when this universe expires is solely based on your actions here. That left-handedness is a sinful temptation that everyone but you was placed here and pre-programmed to act as a part of your test environment. Everyone but you knows this. That- Seems like we're straying into lo- simulation theory. Yeah. And as I sit here and look at you, I'm like, well, is Eric only here to push my boundaries and be a part of, am I the PC or are you the NPC? Right. Am I the NPC and yeah. you're the PC? We just thought we were Dungeon Masters. Heck, we're, we're NPC we're and we're part, not even yeah. players. My God, whose life am I here to alter? It's, it's like a blend of the Truman Show and the Matrix, you know, with several others that almost mock 
our ability to understand and comprehend. Shattered my own mind. Boom. It happened here. Why, I... And, well, hopefully you still exist. You think reality is still a thing? Bill, I'm glad you're still here, at least for the next five minutes. Hopefully you're not tortured by some horrible AI <laughs> at some point in the future, or maybe you're being tortured by an AI now. I don't know. I hope we'll get together and record another podcast. Maybe. I'm not sure if it's real now, though. Does it Does it matter? Does anything matter Does now? it really matter? You've sh- we've, we've shattered... We've shattered our I'm not sure what on wall we're even on now, the shattered... <laughs> <laughs> Well, folks, we hope that we have enlightened, humored, confused you to whatever degree. We hope that you will listen again, and we hope that we, we'll be here for we're, you. We're not being tortured by AI, and yeah. that we actually exist. Yeah. Thanks for listening. So, basically, what if at some point in the future an AI were to come about and punish those who did not do its building? What if there was a... Did I say bidding? You said Building. building. Okay. I don't find it that unfeasible. That wasn't a word. Funner, funner, funner is not a word. More fun than I thought it would be, though. I was kind of dreading it. It's like, this is, this is just... I told Elena. Why? Why? I, I told Elena when I left the house, I was like, we're going to have to talk. And she's like, what do you mean? And I was like, him and I will have to talk. And she goes, isn't that what you always do? We'd like to give a shout out to our first... Uh, paying sponsor Ravens Loft. That's our family shop here located in uh, London, Missouri. It's your one-stop gaming, vintage toy, and collectible shop where you can find Star Wars, Transformers, G.I. Joe, comics, vinyl records, role-play gaming, Magic the Gathering, and so much more. We're located here at 223 West Commercial, downtown Lebanon, and also in our second location, uh, also here in Lebanon at the Heartland Antique Mall. We'd like to thank Ravensloft for again supporting Nightmares on the Lost Highway. I want to take a time to thank the people that helped bring this all together. Uh, Alex Tudor, you can almost call him our producer at this point. Sarah Tudor, who also helps with some of the technical stuff. I want to take a moment to extend thanks to Eric for letting us use his space to record in kind of our makeshift studio. I, in turn, would like to thank Bill for, one, putting up with me and uh, using this camaraderie to do something we both very much love and enjoy doing, and thank Bill's family for allowing him to spend all the time to work and clean up our recordings and present them in what uh, you hear in the final uh, terms, uh, the final edition, if you will. Um, and I'd like to thank all of you for continuing to, to listen. I know we've got some loyal followers out there. We do this as a labor of love, but we're, we're happy that there are people that enjoy it as, hopefully as much as we do. Thank you very much.